0: Thanks uh, for the invitation back again. Um, I must say, uh, when uh, Pat was talking about um, being forgetful just then, uh, I realised that under the seats last week we left our umbrella. Um, so I was slightly distracted by uh, being, being forgetful. Um, I, I want to thank you for giving me the, the climax of this uh, chapter of history because this is the climax. This is the Exodus uh, part of Exodus. Um, this is what the book of Exodus is mm. named after. And in fact, the book of Exodus has not always been called the book of Exodus. Uh, it was called Exodus by the people who translated uh, the book into Greek. Um, and I'm glad they did that in a way because before that the book was uh, really just a section of the Pentateuch. It wasn't known as a separate book and, and they referred to it by its beginning words. Uh, These are the names. Uh, and it's not really as catchy as Exodus. Uh, but part of the Pentateuch, um, or as my kids say, the Pentateuch, uh, and they have a little saying that says, whether you're German, French, or Dutch, you can always learn something from the Pentateuch. <laughs> um, and and if you like this in the in the Pentateuch, this is like well, I don't know. Maybe I'm just saying that because I've been dwelling on it for a couple of weeks. But this is like the key passage. This is like one of the best parts of that. Uh, those first five books of the Bible and I, I want to take us through why why I say that. But if you, if you view uh, those first five books as all part of Genesis, if you like, the beginnings, this is the beginnings, this is the best uh, illustration I believe in the Old Testament of God's heart for salvation, his plan, his ultimate rescue plan. You don't get uh, a better illustration of it than here in Exodus. Our family likes camping. We like to go out in the bush. We don't do it in the winter, but uh, when, when the weather gets good, uh, we go out camping and there's two rules uh, that we have when we're camping. Uh, the kids aren't allowed to play with the fire and I have to turn the lights off inside the tent while Carolyn's getting changed. Um, they're the only two rules. Now, one rule is very simple, that's just about safety, but the second rule is about shadows. And it's taken me a while to get my head around it, but I understand that shadows get cast on tent walls and so on, and that's a no-no. So shadows, though, don't always portray reality. Uh, If you wait for the end of the day, a shadow is very long, uh, and I can look very tall uh, in a long shadow, (laughs) and that does not portray reality. But shadows do give us a glimpse or an outline of what is true. And I'm a big believer in the fact that God has created our physical world and God has allowed history to unfold in a way that gives us shadows. And those shadows can help us understand things about God, and those shadows can help us understand things that are true. And I want to suggest to you that this account in Exodus is it's not the first shadow, but it's probably one of the clearest And it's quite amazing as we sort of unpack it and look at some of the detail we see not just a shadow but actually a very well dimensioned and very detailed shadow of the gospel. And when I say gospel I mean the fact that Jesus came to earth and took the punishment for wrongdoings in order to rescue people who couldn't rescue themselves and to allow us to run towards God instead of away from him. Let's just pause and think about the historical context for a second. Last week we saw that uh, Moses and Aaron have been coming in and out of Pharaoh's chamber, uh, have been negotiating with him. Uh, he keeps saying yes and then keeps doing no. Sounds like he's Australian electoral cycle. Um, <laughs> and there's been nine different plays and it's taken almost a year. So if you think about how uh, the Israelites have been watching this play out, Um, This didn't happen in a week, Um, you know, a plague every day. This took almost a year to take place and to to start playing out. And and the pressure is getting greater and greater on Pharaoh over time. His magicians are starting to run out of answers. And the Egyptian people are starting to suffer. And even some of the Egyptian officials are saying to Pharaoh, when are you going to get it? Just let them go. Pharaoh is almost last man standing. The Israelites have felt the brunt of the first few plagues but have been spared uh, the bulk of them, particularly the last ones, as it starts to get serious. And we finish it at the, chapter, uh, the end of Exodus 10 where just after the plague of darkness, Pharaoh offers to let them go but he says, well, you can go but leave all your animals behind. Leave your wealth behind, basically. Leave but I want, I want your wealth. And Moses says, no, that's not the deal. God wants our wealth, and He'll tell us what He wants of it when we get out into the wilderness. And this makes makes, this makes Pharaoh very angry, and He says, "Well, make sure you never show your face here again, because on that day you'll die." That's pretty harsh words. And then the rest of the story unfolds in four sections. And instead of asking you why, 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 uh, like I did last week, I'm going to spare you that. uh, If you're a parent. You'll be glad to be spared that. Uh, And instead of asking you why, what I'm going to do is walk you through the four stages, if you like, of this Exodus account and hopefully I'm going to show you the clarity of the shadow uh, of the Gospel that's there. And more importantly than that, not just are we going to see a shadow, but we're going to talk about what it means for you and I and for our lives. Because frankly our struggles as Christians or our struggle to be effective as Christians is not lack of Bible knowledge. In the course of history not many people have been more educated in the Bible than we are today and have access to more than we have today. But the connection between what I know as Bible knowledge and what I live out of the choices that I make that's where the challenge comes for us. So let's look at the four sections. First section, uh, there's a warning message that comes from God. God tells Moses, there's going to be one more plague and it's going to come on Pharaoh and on Egypt and after that he will let you go. It is going to happen. And on God's instruction, Moses, in the face of the death threat that he received from Pharaoh, Moses comes into Pharaoh's presence. It seems that he had to really psych himself up because he was hot with anger and he delivers that message to Pharaoh. And so we're in chapter 11 verses 4 to 8 if you're following on. And the message is one of judgment. It's one of death. A judgment where there is going to be a distinction between those who are God's people and those who are not. Let me read to you just a sample of those words again. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been uh, or ever will be again. But among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. You know Jesus has given the same message to us we have received a message. With his very words, Jesus said, hey, there is a day coming when there will be a judgment. And judgment will be final. It's not just an inconvenient experience. It will be final. And on that judgment day, there will be a distinction between those who have chosen to be God's people and those who have not. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This is not a new concept. Jesus drove this message home many, many times that he will make a distinction on the day of judgment, we see it in the parable of the talents, we see it in the parable of the tenants, we see it in the parable of the weeds, where both grow up together, and eventually the farmer gets sick of it, and he, when he harvests, he makes a distinction, and he treats one way and one the other way. The analogy of the vine and the branches goes on and on and on, it's right through the, the words of Jesus in the New Testament. And if you believe the Bible is true, I hope you do, then this is what it is telling us. Right now, we're living. In an age of grace where the warning message has been given but not yet delivered, judgment has not yet been delivered. And there is a time coming when God will act in accordance with that judgment. And when He acts, it's going to be final. It's going to be final. So, my questions for you are this Do you believe that what God says about what's coming in the future is true? Do you even believe that it's true? What do you think is going to happen to you when you die? What do you think is going to happen to you if the end of time comes before you die? What distinction is God going to make in relation to you when he comes to sort out his people from others? If I finished right there on judgment, I wouldn't have really a great reflection of the gospel, would I? But there is more. Because in chapter twelve, then God gives a good news message. The message of judgment and death and damnation comes with a way of escape. There is a way to avoid God's wrath in this in this scenario. And God gives very clear instructions as how to go about that. He says, for those who will choose to obey, there is a way of escape. And here it is. And he gives clear instructions about choosing a lamb without defect and killing it and roasting it and eating it with bitter herbs and being ready to walk out the door as soon as God's promised uh, escape comes to pass. It's a little bit like the first kind of takeaway meal. You know, you've got to be eating on the run. And in Exodus twelve seven, he says this, when they, uh, So then they are to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and tops of the door frames uh, of the houses where they, where they eat the lambs. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on, the gods, on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Wow! The shadow just got a whole lot clearer, did it not? This is possibly the best Old Testament illustration of the Gospel. And it's not just irony, I think it's tragedy that the Jewish people came sometime after this to believe that you had to earn your place before God. There was no earning in this scenario. God didn't rescue the people because they deserved it. He didn't rescue them because they, uh, you know, between now and when I come through, make sure you'll be good for goodness sake. It was nothing like that. It wasn't merited. Yes, God wanted obedience, but it wasn't on merit that he saved them. And this parallel, this, this shadow picture that we get, this outline of the gospel It becomes so clear when we look at the Passover lamb. In fact, I was so glad, uh, Pat, that you gave us that song before, uh, just prior to communion. His dying breath has brought me life. These people had to kill an animal. They had to have death in order to bring life. Hebrews 9.22 says, The law requires nearly everything to be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God instituted later on for his people a sacrificial system to remind them time and time again that sin requires payment and the payment is death. And then Jesus, when he came, given the description of the Lamb of God, Described to his disciples that his death was a ransom for many. He foretold his death. He celebrated the Passover with his disciples just before his death. And he said to them, This, when he had the last supper with them, this is my body. It's going to be given for others. This is my blood. It's being shed for forgiveness of sin. Jesus was the Lamb. But then they had to sprinkle the blood. They actually had to kill the lamb and then do something about it. Before now, they had been able to escape the other nine plagues just by being Israelite. If there was a distinction to be made between Egyptian and Israelite, then just because they were Israelite, they were spared. But this time was different. The plague was coming to everyone this time. There was no way to escape sorry there was no way to escape it unless you acted and you had to make your own choice about whether you were going to escape this plague and the escape was based on nothing other than the blood of the lamb there was no merit in the arrangement there was no behavioral score it didn't matter whether someone had been a faithful israelite for a long time or whether they'd been a grumbling Moses hater. All that mattered was that the person chose to accept that they could escape the plague by offering the sacrifice of the lamb. God wasn't looking for anything else. God didn't say, when I come over, I'll check that your kids have uh, been well disciplined and that you've been good to your wife and I'll check for blood as well. No there was only one thing that God was looking for. And again, if you want to cast that shadow of that story onto the ground and see the outline of the Gospel, we can see that it is actually Jesus' death that saves us, not anything else. Each of us has to choose. It's not enough to have Christian parents. It's not enough to have Christian friends. It's not even enough to belong To have your name on the roll of a Christian church, or to be a deacon or an elder or a communion server or a musician or anything, those things are not what saves us. It's not even enough to stand up here and tell you about it. It is actually Jesus that saves us. And there is no merit. I'm very grateful for this, I've got to tell you. There is no merit in this equation. Again, I'm going to quote the words of that song to you. I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I can't give an answer. I don't have an answer for that. There is no deservedness in this equation. So I'm going to ask you this. Have you heard the good news before? Maybe you're not sitting here in the church. Maybe you're going to be listening to a podcast Have you heard the good news before? Have you believed it? If so, have you acted on it? It wasn't enough for the Israelites to hear it from Moses. They actually had to do something about it. They actually had to make a choice. You may be relying on something other than Jesus for your practical salvation. Do you doubt your position before God when you fail? If so, can I suggest to you that perhaps your practical salvation is somewhere other than Jesus? If you get squeamish about your position before God when you fail. It is only Jesus that saves. And that is both humbling and then incredibly reassuring. I have to swallow my pride and fall on my knees and know that I can't save myself and then when I fail come back to Jesus and say I'm so glad it was just you who saved me and not me. So first of all there was a warning message. Secondly there was a good news message. A way of escape. Now thirdly there's passing on the message. Look at chapter 12 verses 21 through 28. 28. And that was uh, shared with us before. Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and he said to them, Moses has heard the message from God, he's given the warning to Pharaoh, but now he has to pass it on to the people. If he didn't pass it on, it would be Moses and Aaron who would be home free and everyone else would have suffered the death of their firstborn. They had a job to do to make sure that the people they cared about knew about the way of escape. Moses and Aaron couldn't deliver the escape for them but it was their responsibility to make sure the message was passed on. And so that's what they do. He summons the elder of Israel uh, and he gives them the same message that God has given to Moses. Again, the edges of this shadow are starting to get clearer and clearer and sharper. Have we not received a message? You and I have received a message. You and I know something that other people actually don't know. That I'm just going to pause here. It's easy for us to assume that people know who Jesus is, know what Jesus did, know what they've got to do about it. Can I tell you, we live in a time of kind of religious ignorance. There is incredible pluralism out there where you're allowed allowed to sort of make up your own God, make up your own rules and just follow it. Jesus, for a lot of people, Jesus is a swear word or he's uh, a label that people claim and they call those people hypocrites and yep, they're right, we are hypocrites, we say one thing and we often do another. There are so many people. I work alongside people who know Christians, and yet those, these non-Christian people that I work alongside, they have no idea. You know? Andy, you're a Christian, that means you're a good person? Uh, no, it doesn't. A Christian means he knows he's not a good person. There's, there's a whole lot of backwards or just vacant knowledge about Jesus. Think about, as the parallel goes further, we can't make up people's mind for them. You can't compel someone to accept the gospel. You can't twist their arm until they say, yes, I'll say the magic words. All we can do is ensure that they know. All we can do is to pass on the message. Be faithful in that. Yes, we'll do it in love. Yes, we live out the gospel, not just with telling them the message and, uh, and hoping that they you know, accept and then ignoring them for the rest of the day um, living out the gospel is more than just speaking the words it's living the words um, I used to live in Lilydale, and uh, there was a very uh, conservative church there and they used to preach down on the street uh, and if you walked slowly past the guy who was preaching he would deliberately raise his eyes and he would look up at the sky uh, just in case you made eye contact and spoke to him uh, and then when you go on, he would lower his gaze again and uh, preach to the empty footpath. Uh, he was speaking the gospel, he was speaking the truth, um, but he wasn't actually engaging the person. Um, and i query whether he actually had a heart for the very person who would occasionally stop and listen uh, because he would never make eye contact and he, he couldn't possibly bring himself to have conversation with them. We as a church and I say that in the big sense the big C church but also you as a small congregation as a, as a church we have been called to pass on a message. We've been given the message of the gospel and have been asked to pass it on. Acts 11, you'll be my witnesses sorry Acts 1, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends Of the earth. And so as I I read this passage, I ask myself this question When was the last time I shared the gospel with someone? When was the last time I did what God has asked us to do and passed on the message to someone else? When was the last time I explained to someone? You know how you think that Christians are a bunch of goody goodies who get together and, you know, buff up their halos? It's not true. Let me tell you what Christians believe about themselves and about God. When was the last time I did that? When was the last time you did that? When was the last time we saw someone come to faith here? How do we even view the success of our church? How do I view my own personal faith? What am I measuring? Am I measuring my responsibilities, numbers in my church, How many kids or families I have? Or am I measuring the gospel? Am I measuring my obedience to pass on the message? And I'm not saying you should measure it so that you feel good about yourself. I'm asking you that that is actually a measure of obedience. That we can be really, really righteous or I use that in a... uh, In inverted commas, we can be very, very holy and very, very irrelevant to a whole lot of people. So God gives a warning message about judgment and then he gives a rescue message. There is a way out. And then he says to Moses, pass on the message. And then ultimately the judgment and the rescue come about. What God is saying is coming, comes. 12.29 at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all livestock as well. There was no exceptions here. It was universal judgement and God God has brought this kind of judgement on places before We've seen God acting even before this point in history as a God of judgement. Think about what he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He announced his judgement. He gave a way out for those people who would choose it. Sent angels to rescue Lot and his family. And then he acted the absolute final judgement. He absolutely obliterated that place. Now some people have asked me was it God himself who struck down the firstborn or was it you know, God's angel or some another sickness, plague or something else. I'm not sure why it matters to you but here's what the Bible says. Exodus 12.12 12, I will pass through Egypt and strike down the firstborn. Verse 13 I will pass over you. Verse 23 When the Lord sees the blood he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses. Sometimes people think that destroyer word is some, some separate agent. Uh, but then verse 29 at midnight the Lord struck down Psalm 78 says, uh, it describes the acts of God in judgment against the Egyptians, uh, and and it uses description as a band of destroying angels. Uh, But when Exodus uses this word, uh, he would not permit the destroyer to enter your home, God's not talking about someone else. This is not a noun given to a person or a thing. It's actually talking really about death or corruption. A a more accurate use of words for us today would be when God sees the blood he will not permit dying to be in your house. This is God himself actively acting in judgement. This is not a passive event. This is actually the hand of God. And sometimes we struggle with that concept because God is not only wholly merciful but he's wholly just and he's wholly righteous. And I was really grateful to uh, Rob before when he stood up and shared that, that God is 100% of each of his characteristics and he has to be 100% true to them. He can't sort of turn his back on something or sweep it under the carpet or cut a corner. That's not able, God can't do that. Sounds weird to say God can't do something, doesn't it? But but God is 100% true to his character and so in this instance God judges and he acts in absolute final and complete judgement. And then in verse 31 God's other words come true. When God told Moses there was one more plague coming and he said, and then Pharaoh will let you go. Pharaoh does. Pharaoh does let them go, all of them. Men, women, people, animals. And then more than that, they leave with articles of silver and gold and clothing that the Egyptians gave to them. Why? Because God had made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people. I love this. God has kept them in slavery. Uh, Sorry, God has allowed those people to sit in slavery for so long and they've grown into massive numbers We're talking millions of people and they have their own livestock but they don't have much else and as they leave God says just ask your neighbours whether they've got anything that you could take and he inclines the hearts of the Egyptians to the point where they, they don't just walk out they don't just lose all their workforce the Egyptians lose a whole stack of wealth this is one massive tax on Egypt It's like paying for all that labour that you've had over the last couple of hundred years. And it's not just Egyptians leaving. Many other people left with them. We know from uh, chapter 9 verse 20 there were actually Egyptians, including officials, who feared the Lord and who heeded Moses' warnings about the plagues. The Exodus has just taken place. They just got up and left. Just like God said would happen. And so what do we know to be true? Well, what God said was coming actually came. God was true to his word about the judgment. God was true to his word about the rescue. God was true to his word about the events and the responses of others. And if you want to look at this true account as a shadow of something larger that God is trying to show us, it goes probably even further than just being a demonstration of the Gospel. And right now, for me at least, here's what God, I think, can demonstrate here. First of all, you and I know something that other people don't know. You and I know the Gospel message. We know that there is a judgement coming. We know that where we stand, without Jesus, before God, and we know that there's something... That we can actually do about that. You and I know that. Other people don't. Secondly, we live in a time between warning and judgment. The Bible tells us God delays his judgment because he's gracious, but one day it will come. It will come in his perfect time. And we know that to be true because the Bible tells us that will happen. And we see that time and time again, what God says is coming in the Bible comes. We also know it's not just our responsibility, it's not just a good idea, it's actually a command for us to share the gospel. Jesus said, go make disciples. He didn't say sort of get together and scratch each other's back, you know. Give each, give each other a high five for those moments of obedience. Actually, it's our job To make disciples. The church has once been described, I can't remember who said it, as the only organisation that exists for the benefit of those who don't belong. The only organisation that exists for the benefit of those who don't belong. That's powerful words. We are actually commanded to be God's witnesses. So the church is not a club where I can associate with like minded people, it's not a place where I come to get fed like I do at a cafe. It's not a place uh, that I can sort of complain about if it's not giving me what I need. It is actually a group of people who have together been given the same task. This is a team meeting. This is kind of like a sports team. You know, We all have the same goal. We all have a role to play. We all need to get together, spur each other on to get out on the field and do what it is that we've been tasked to do. And you and I know better than the next guy. That's what else that God has been teaching me out of this passage. There is no distinction between behaviour of mine and behaviour of someone else. God is not measuring my merit, He's not measuring my worth, He's not watching all those things that I do or don't do. God is actually asking me this what have you done about Jesus? Have you given me a life? Have you allowed Jesus to change your life? And so I can't walk into this place and say, "Wow, I feel good about myself." You know I've spent the week reading Exodus, and I've made a lot of notes, and I've said quite a few prayers. Um, and that guy I saw out there with his cigarette and his tattoos, what is that? This is pure judgment. That's me measuring something other than what God measures. That is not me measuring Jesus. There is only one thing that saves Jesus. God didn't give us a second chance. If you ask the question, does God give second chances? Most of us say yes, but the implication of a second chance is that you fail the first time and you'll succeed the second. There was no way for us to succeed. God didn't give a second chance. He knew we had no chance. He saved us because he was our only chance. So we're not saved because we're good people. Truth be known, God saves us when we realise that we're bad people. So I hope that you become a church uh, or that you continue to be a church uh, that gets together in the knowledge that none of us kind of deserve to be here and that we reach out for the benefit of those who don't belong. So can I ask you these final questions? Number one, why do you think God saved you? Why should I gain from his reward? Have you ever had times in your life where you feel like you actually, you deserve God's love? You know? You've been pretty good. God ought to love you, save you bless you excuse you from pain or illness have you ever had those moments? I have in fact the reverse also happens to me when I go through hardship or when things don't go my way I say come on God I'm holding up my end of the bargain what happened to you somehow I think that I deserve different to what the next guy gets And it's not true. How can we as a collective bring the gospel to others? How can we collectively bring the gospel to others? How can we individually bring the gospel to someone? Who is it in your life that you've got a relationship with and you know that they don't know the gospel? They don't know that concept that Jesus came to do something that people couldn't do for themselves. Maybe you think they'll be weirded out by the fact that you can talk about this stuff. But if you know something they don't know, and it is our responsibility to share it, when will you share it with them? Will you pray, as I've been with great trepidation, praying for an opportunity? To share the gospel with those who are in my life who I know don't know Jesus. It's one thing for me to be comfortable with my life, but well, one day there will be a judgment day, and I have to account for what I have and haven't said to those people who don't know Him. Will you pray with me as we pray? I'm, I'm just going to say a prayer now. Lord God, thank you for the story. Uh, of the Exodus, thank you for orchestrating a series of events that casts an incredible shadow—a shadow that we can look at and understand parts of the gospel. We can understand how it is that you can uh, be a God of mercy and yet a God of judgment, Lord. We know that this uh, this story is not the gospel, but it casts a shadow of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would continue to. Um, flood our heart with the truth of the gospel that is that we can't save ourselves and that you're not actually looking uh, for us to earn our way into your favour Lord I pray for courage for us those of us who have accepted the gospel for ourselves we'd be courageous enough to tell other people what it is that we believe. Remind us, Lord, what it is that we believe. Don't let us uh, fall into that temptation of thinking that we deserve something. Help us, Lord, to see opportunities and to take them and to be bold and brave and rely on you and say, you know what? This is going to be nothing of me and this is going to be all of God. Help us to be faithful to those moments despite our fears. Despite the risk, despite the potential change that it might bring to relationships, help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. We ask that you would work in our hearts, God. Not that we would acquire more and more Bible knowledge and be able to quote verses and events and characters and doctrines, but Lord, we want more than anything for you to be living in our hearts, the place where our decisions and our behaviour and our choices and our uh, life directions, the place where all those things come from. We ask that you would be there. If there's things, Lord, in the way, we ask that you would remove them. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.